We're in week three of a series in Genesis. Together we're going through the first 11 chapters of the Bible, really important chapters, chapters that really are fundamental and foundational in shaping the way we view everything, the way we understand God, the way we understand the world, the way we understand who we are and how we relate to the world around us. And so... um, I think this is going to be a really important series for us as a church in just kind of shaping for, for us what it looks like to live and to think as a Christian. And if you're with us for the first time here in a few weeks and you missed those first two Sundays, don't worry, you didn't miss a whole lot. You missed four words, okay? Two Sundays ago, we actually just, well, actually only two words in Hebrew. Bereshith was the first word we looked at two weeks ago, which is just the word Beginning. And we looked at how this is a book, Genesis, a book of beginnings, and how we are to understand this opening of God's story, the opening of the Bible. And then last week, we looked at the second word, Elohim, God. In the beginning, God. And we just stopped there last week, and we talked about the God who was at the beginning. What sort of God is He like? Does He show Himself to be here at the beginning of the story He tells and so at this pace, you might be thinking, I, I don't know that I'm actually going to live long enough to kind of see this series through. This is going to take us a really, really long time, but we're going to pick up the pace here this morning. And this morning, we're going to look at the whole first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. And so if you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to take it, to open it up to Genesis chapter 1. It's not hard to find. It is page 1, Okay. So we're making this really easy for those of you who might be new to the Bible and new to church. So uh, open up to Genesis chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible or maybe you've got, you know, your your grandmother's old Bible that has old-fashioned language you don't understand, we've got a lot of great Bibles, some that are free, some you just pay a few bucks for at our resource center that we'd love to get into your hands to help you. So um, bear with me. This is, uh, last week was the shortest scripture reading in the history of New Life Church. It was one verse. This, I don't know if it'll be the longest, but this is going to take a few minutes. But there's really no way to like just take a piece of this because I think we really need to see the whole. This is the account of God creating everything, according to the Bible. And so we're just going to read the whole chapter, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and He separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. And God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. And God called the dry ground land. And He gathered waters He called seas And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. And the land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. 
And there was evening and there was morning the third day. The Lord said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day and the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. And He also made the stars. And God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the waters teem and that moves around on it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And at this point, I'm hoping you're starting to like pick up on patterns that we're going to look at here. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the waters uh, in the seas. Uh, and let the birds increase on the earth, and there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them, male and female, He created them. And God blessed them and He said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath, the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that He had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were created in all their vast array. There you go. That is the account of God's creation of everything. Uh, this morning, I, there, there's a lot we could say this morning, really what I want to do is I want to see two things that Genesis 1 should inspire in us and four essential truths that it shouts to us and it shouts to the world that are, that are really important that we need to see. But, but let's be honest here at the beginning. How many of you, in just hearing that read, um, immediately are asking yourselves, I wonder when God made the universe. I wonder how God did it. Like, what was that process like anyway? Are, are you already thinking about that, asking those questions? Is that when you read? We got a scientist down here in the front row. I'd be curious. We got a professor at the University of Manitoba who's a scientist here. I'd love to hear your perspective. You want, you want to? No, okay. That's fine. Do you want to preach this? You're good? You'll stick with the bass guitar. You're good. All right. Um, I think many of us, we come to this and, and immediately we want to we 
see. We want to find answers to the questions of when and how. But what I want us to know is that the primary emphasis of Genesis 1 is not to answer when and how. It's to answer who and why. Not that it doesn't say anything about when and how, but, but that's not the main focus here. This is really a text, first and foremost, that should inspire worship. This is a worship text. I mean, we should read this account of God creating everything and should be so stirred by His greatness, by His glory, that we should just invite the worship team to come back up here and just sing of God's greatness again. Or, or maybe we should pull up Netflix, and instead of me preaching, we should just play like an episode of Planet Earth. Any votes for that? Who votes for planet Earth instead of a sermon? A few of you, shame on you. This is a worship text. As David would say in Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens, the skies declare the glory of God. The earth proclaims the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. All of creation is shouting about God, who He is, about His glory, inspiring us to worship him. We see in what God has made, we see His glory in, in the bigness of the universe. We might call that the macrocosm. Um, you know, and, and I gave some of these stats at some point last year, so you might remember some of this. How many stars are there in the universe? Well, according to scientists, at their best count, 200 billion trillion stars. That's a lot of stars. The biggest star they found so far, they named it UI Scuti. I don't know why. It makes our sun look like a speck. The diameter of this large star is 2.4 billion kilometers. The diameter. And that's one of, uh, how many, what did it say? 200 billion trillion stars out there? Okay, that, that's a lot of stars. The universe is big. We don't know exactly how big because we haven't seen the end of it yet. We, we're, we're not sure what that even means. But the knowable universe that we've already been able to see, and I don't know how they do that. I'm just, I thank God that there are people smarter than me that God made. Because if the world was just a bunch of rusties, we'd be living in caves. We would not have fire. We would not have wheels. We maybe would have loincloths. That's as far as we would have gotten, okay? But there are people through science and technology and the wisdom that God gives that have been able to like actually see and measure. And so the best measurement right now of what we know to be the, uni the, the diameter of the noble universe is... Um, that it is 20, or sorry, it is 94 billion light years across that we've seen. 94 billion. Light year. Do you know what a light year is? A light year is the distance light travels in a year. And light travels 186,000 miles per second. Per second. Now, what does it travel in a year? And whatever travels in a year, 94 billion of those. That's big. In Rusty's terms big. And it's getting bigger all the time. I figured the exact, something like 180 million kilometers every hour that the universe is expanding. It's, it's actually still getting bigger and bigger. We see God's glory in how big the universe is. Like when we behold that, when we think that God just spoke that and it's there, like that should inspire worship. We see God's glory in kind of actually how, not just how big, but how small and detailed and complex the universe is. The hydrogen atom, everything is made up of atoms, I'm told. A hydrogen atom is very small. Of course, you can never see it with, with an eye. 
Um, but if you would blow that uh, atom up billions upon billions of times so that the center, the proton at, a at the center of a hydrogen atom was the size of a soccer ball, the electron that circles that would be the size of a golf ball at a distance of five miles from that soccer ball. And in between that proton and that electron is nothing. Most of you is nothing. You just think of that, like most of you is just space. Yeah. The immensity and the complexity of creation should cause us to worship God because He spoke it into existence and by His power, it is. Unfortunately, too often Genesis 1, instead of inspiring worship, inspires and has caused a debate, dis uh, argument, disagreement, division. When, when we want to focus on the questions of the when and the how instead of the who and the why. And again, not that the when and the, and the how questions are unimportant or, or uninteresting. Um, and, and so let's just take a couple of minutes because I, I'm sure some of you, even when you heard we were going to go through the beginning of Genesis when, when we shared that last fall, you thought, oh, good, finally we're going to find out how long did it take did God make the universe, Right? And so, listen, the second thing that this text should inspire after worship is humility, theological humility. We need to be willing to say, hey, there are places in the Scriptures which we, lead, which we believe to be the unfailing and errant Word of God. It is true in all it intends to teach. And that's why we have to take it seriously. That's why we can't just come to Genesis 1 and say, that's just the imaginations of man trying to make the best sense of the world. You know, when we look at that and we look at science, they really have nothing to do with one another. No, like we've got to take that seriously. This is God's revelation of Himself and His work to us. But we need to have humility because we need to acknowledge that there are places where there are not such clear and certain answers to the questions that we might bring to it, because it might not even be trying to answer the question you're asking. In Genesis chapter 1, this account is one of those places where we need to have humility, where we need to recognize that there, are, there is room for a variety of, of interpretations that faithful Christians that believe that this is the Word of God and take it seriously can actually have, can see in Genesis 1, 1. There, there, is, there is room to have a variety of legitimate views. Uh, and, and I just want to walk through very quickly, just six of them, just to give you a sense of this. And I know some of you have studied this way more than I have because this might be of particular interest to you, or maybe this has been a stumbling block in your faith. How can I accept the Bible? How can I accept the reality of the gospel if this is a part of that? And then I look at the world, and this is what I'm told, right, um, is true about the earth, about the universe. Okay, so that first, the first view of God's creative process in Genesis 1, you might call the six-day young earth creation. This might be the view that, that many of us might hold. This maybe was the view that many of us would have grown up hearing or being taught. This is the idea that these six days that are spoken of here in Genesis 1 are, are six 24-hour uh, days that happen consecutively. In over six days of 24 hours each, God made everything in this manner. And then people that promote that and scientists that believe that, they would have answers to the, to the, to the questions or the challenges that maybe, that maybe science might pose to that. And some of you have, have studied that and found that to be compelling. But that would be one legitimate reading here, understanding of Genesis 1-1, God's creative process. Now, some people might look at this, this um, the sense that science tells us that, that age is really old instead of being 10,000 years old. It, it you know, looks like it's maybe billions of years old. And so another perspective 
that some people see here is called mature creationism, which, which essentially still believes that God made over, over the period of six days, but, he, but what He made looked like it had been there for a long time. Like when He made Adam, when God made the first man and the first woman, they weren't like babies, still wet in amniotic fluid or something. Just like, like they, were, they were grown, they were mature. If you would have looked at them, they would have said, that's a mature person. That's a guy in his 20s at the peak. That, that depresses me because I'm in my 40s. To hear that you're, you're peaking your 20s, that's depressing. Well, if God, like why, could God not have made the whole universe with, with the appearance of maturity? Like if you, had te- if you would have tested a rock on day one, radiocarboned it, would it have said, this is eight hours old? Or would it have said, this is an old rock? Just like Adam is a grown man. He was like, that's kind of, okay. Could God have made that with the appearance? Well, sure he could have. Sure he could have. And so, so that's one possible legitimate reading here. A third one, it's called the inter- intermittent day theory. Uh, it's just that God created in these, in these six days, but those were not six consecutive days, but they were spread out by indefinite periods of time, right? So they don't all happen in sequence. There were different spurts of God's creative act. That's one um, legitimate reading of, of Genesis chapter 1. A fourth one is called the gap theory. Maybe you're familiar with, with, with that. A little bit different. It, it holds that there is a gap in between verse 1 and verse 2. Verse 1 says that God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything. And then verse 2 says, now the earth was formless and empty. So we might read that as um, God, what God created in that moment was kind of unformed, and now He starts shaping it. But others have posited, well, it, it could be that there's actually a gap there that God created everything. And instead of it saying, now the earth was formless and, and empty, it could be read legitimately the earth became formless and empty. Something happened. And so some have posited, you know, this angelic rebellion, that the creation doesn't tell us, account how, how Satan fell, right? We see Satan in Genesis chapter 3. How did that happen? Other parts of the Bible talk, talk about kind of this angelic fall, just like man fell. But it, the, the beginning of the Bible doesn't tell us when and how that happened. And so it's been posited that, that God made, and then there's this gap where, where creation kind of falls into ruin. And then what you have in the rest of Genesis 1 is actually God's work of recreation. Okay, that's one legitimate potential reading. Uh, the fifth one is called the day-age view. And what it does is it just takes this word for day. In the Hebrew, that's yom. Like you've maybe heard of yom kippur, right? That Jewish festival, the day of atonement. Yom is day in Hebrew. And, and it recognizes that, you know, sometime, very often, the normal reading of yom is that's an actual day, 24 hours, but sometimes in the scriptures, yom actually just refers to an age, a period of time, an era, right, an epoch. And we even say that today, right? I might say, back in the day, back in the day. And, and you might say, what day, Rusty? Like, what day, March 17th, 1971? And I'd be like, no, that's not what I mean. I'm, not, I'm, I'm talking about back in a day, a period of time, back in my day. We even use the word day kind of in, in both of those ways, and they did in biblical times too. So some have thought, well, maybe instead of six 24-hour days, what, what it's saying is that God created over a period of time um, in, in indefinite days or, or ages. Okay, that, that is a legitimate reading of this. Now, every single one of those doesn't answer every question and it raises some other questions. Uh, the, the, the sixth one, the final one I'll mention, is called the analogical day view. It's this idea that, 
that God is giving us a pattern here and talking about a day and morning and evening. And so he's making it analogous to our own human days. And he's kind of establishing or using the pattern of work and rest within human life. But that, but that these days are not human days. These are God's days. These are God's work days. And the point here in talking about days and six and morning and evening is not the fact that um, it's, it's talking about a day so much as that it's talking about the cycle of work and rest that's analogous to our work and rest, kind of relating it to us. Well, okay, that, that, that's one potential reading here. In fact, that word to create, bara, if you were here last week, in the beginning God created, that's a very special word. You don't bara, I don't bara, no one you know is bara's. We asa, we make, only God baraz. To, to bara means to create something absolutely new that wasn't there before. And only God in the Bible ever baraz. And, and here in, in Genesis chapter 1, there's three times where it says God baraz. Three times where it says God created. The first is in verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth. The second one is on day 5, when God created the, the, the fish and the birds, right? It says in verse 21, so God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing. And then the third and final time, it says God baraz, God creates something that's absolutely new that He introduces into His creation, is um, in verse 27, God created mankind in His image. So that's interesting. Three times He talks about God creating the universe, like all the, all, all the matter, material, right? And then God creates animals, He introduces something new, living, breathing, mind, spirit, not soul, but spirit. And then He creates something new. He creates mankind. This This is something that's not just living and breathing like the animals, but this is something with consciousness and with soul. And so we see kind of these different acts of creation. And interestingly, when He talks about vegetation coming up in verse, um, or on day three, He says, let the land produce vegetation. Right? So, he, he makes the land and then He commands the land to make it. It doesn't say He made it or it doesn't say, and God made plant. He said, I, I'm, I'm calling the land to make. So, all these little interesting little things, which, which when we look at them, I, I guess what it should cause us to have is humility. Humility, right? That, to understand that, hey, it's okay if we don't really fully feel like we have an answer or no, that there is room here to understand this differently. And there are some personally that I find stronger than others, but I have to be honest, there's not one that I feel like I'm absolutely convinced for and, and, and really committed to, to, to any one of these, because I think there's a few there that have a pretty strong case. And you know, Augustine, St. Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, Charles Hodges, B.B. Warfield, Francis Schaeffer, Charles Spurgeon, C.S. Lewis, R.C. Sproul, Tim Keller, John Piper, D.A. Carson, William Lane Craig, maybe you know a few of those names. Maybe Augustine, if not now, C.S. Lewis. All great people, theologians and pastors and scholars, that all in Genesis 1 had a bit of a different understanding. Throughout church history, that's not new. That's not new. So I, I just want to run through that um, just, to, just to tell us how important it is here to have theological humility. This text is about inspiring worship it should not cause division or it should not cause argument. There is room within uh, the, the text and there's room within this church to, to, um, 
to have a variety of perspectives on this. And so our, in our own statement of faith, we reflect that. When it talks about creation, it says, we believe the triune God created everything, both physical and spiritual, out of nothing. We believe that God created human beings, male and female, in His own image. So we talk about, you know, that God created, and we believe Adam and Eve experienced perfect relationship with their Creator. So a historical first man and a historical first woman. But beyond that, God made everything out of nothing, and there is room. There is room to understand that difficultly because the text, if we take it seriously, if we're going to be honest, it leaves room. And that's okay. And the other, the other reason I, I want to say that is because I, I have this feeling in my 42 years of life that there are some people, as, as they have grown and studied, that a certain perspective of creation has become so predominant that this is so welded, so connected to the Christian faith, to the gospel, to the Bible, that if you don't affirm this one specific understanding then it undoes the rest. Then you have to get rid of the whole. And that's not true. Actually, the Bible doesn't allow us to do that. But I think some people have been given that impression and unfortunately, I think, have kind of dispensed with the Christian faith unnecessarily because of that. So that's why I just wanted to take a few minutes because you might even be someone that's wrestling with that yourself and going, I don't know about this whole Christian faith thing because of some of these things that you feel might be essential to believe or understand that maybe are not so. What, what is essential? What does Genesis 1 shout at us and say is truly important? And there's just four things that I think we need to see in Genesis chapter 1. And the first is this, that God created everything. Now, we talked a bit about that last week, so I'm not going to spend much time on this. God created everything out of nothing, out of nothing. So, whichever of those viewpoints you believe, what you have to affirm is that creation is a miracle. How God did the miracle could have done it in different ways. When God did the miracle could have done it at different times. But you can't get around the fact that God creating everything out of nothing is, by definition, a miracle. And this trips up people that just want to be only focused on, the, on science or the, the material because at the end of the day, there are no answers that that can provide ultimate answers because creation is a miracle of God. God is the source of everything. He is the origin, and so we need God all the time. If God created everything, that means He needs to be the Lord of everything in your life. It means there's nothing that you face, nothing you're involved in that God has nothing to do with. There's no question in your life that God is not the person that provides the answer for. Because He is the creator of all, He is the Lord of all, and we, we, we don't just come to Him sometimes or look to Him for some things, but He is to be God over every area of our lives. He has everything to do with everything because He made everything. That's all I'll say there. The second thing that this chapter shouts to us is that God created intentionally and purposefully. You know, there are other stories out there and in the time when this was written, when this was actually put down uh, for the Israelites, the Babylonians and the Egyptians and the Assyrians, they all had stories of how the gods, and it was never a god, it was always a series of gods that were always at war with one another, how they made stuff, right? And, and in, in every instance, those other uh, explanations for why there's something here, why we're here, um, involved chaos and conflict. You know, it was the gods, they were fighting, 
And a couple weeks ago, I shared an example of that. And this God killed that God and cut that God up into pieces and flung that piece over there. And that became that part of creation and flung that. And that became the sun and that became the earth. And, and, and creation was born out of chaos, out of conflict. It's the byproduct of that. But what we have in here is very different, a very different vision of God and creation. Um, we, we see a very interesting pattern here. You know, in verse 2, it says, Now the earth was formless and empty, or in Greek, and I, or in the Hebrew, which this was written, it, it, literally it means tohu vabohu, which is fun to say. Tofu, <coughs> tofu. In the beginning there was tofu. Tohu vabohu. Let's all say it together. Tohu vabohu. You can't say you don't have fun at church, right? You got to tell your friends, you got to come. You all just spoke in tongues. Just, you didn't even know it. So it rhymes, which makes it fun, but it literally means the earth when God made everything, the material, it, was all, it, it, it represents something that's uninhabitable. It's not fit for life. It is formless and empty or void. And then look what God does. And we see this pattern, very interesting pattern. You can throw up this chart there, Christian. Day one, what does God make? He makes light. In the darkness, He makes light. And what does He do in day two? In day two, He makes sea and sky. What does He do in day three? Well, in day three, He makes land and vegetation. And what does he do in day four? Well, in day four, he kind of comes back to the top and he makes the luminaries, right? Sun, moon, stars. He fills the sky or he fills the space. What does he do in day five? Well, he makes birds and fish. He fills the ocean and he fills the sky. And what does he do in day six? Well, he fills the earth. He makes animals and he makes humans for the land. And maybe you've already picked up on this pattern because you're, you've studied this or you're a student of the Bible and you've, you just picked up on this. But it is so clear, right? Because in verse 2 it says, when God created it at the beginning, it was formless and void. And then the rest of the chapter is God forming it and filling it. He, day 1 through 3, he, 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 he actually creates the realms, the spaces, he structures. And then he comes back and then he fills each of those. Day 1 with 4, 2 with 5, 3 with 6. And what we have here is a picture of God ordering the universe. It's very, it's very purposeful. It's very intentional. God is, brings uh, order out of chaos. I remember when I was in Macedonia doing mission work one summer, um, I had a German roommate named Clemens. And, and my greatest, um, uh, what do you call that, culture shock wasn't being in this foreign land. It was having a German roommate. Now, I'm German, but I'm like a few generations away from the motherland. But this guy was like German-German, right? Like, fit the stereotype. I mean, if I put my foot up on the coffee table, feet don't go on coffee tables. Feet go on ground. I guess. And then he came and he looked in my room, and I, I, got, I got underwear hanging from the ceiling fan. My suitcase is open and kind of, if you've ever been in my office, you're like, oh, yeah, I get it. I can picture it. I can picture it. Clothes are just strewn around, and his, everything is just perfectly folded and pressed. There's this pile of underwear, there's a pile of pants, there's a pile of shirts, very German. And, and he was very, I, I really bugged him. 
I was very hard to live with for him because it was so chaotic. And for him, he said, I, I just remember him saying in his German accent, God is a God. I can't do it. Sorry. I, it always starts German and then it comes out French and I just can't. God is a God. God is, I can't do it. Sorry. Um, does anyone else want to try? No? Okay. God is a God of order. You know, he's going to say, Clement saying, God is a God of order. He's a God of order. And, and I, I think in that instance, you know, it was less theology that was the difference there and more nationality. But, but I, I mean, what he's saying there is not wrong. What we see in Genesis 1 is God is a God of order. Everything he did in creation and everything he does, he does with intention. He does very purposefully. And actually, th- th- this whole view, which is a radically different view of the creation of the world than anything else, which was all about chaos and conflict and battles between gods, And here we see God making, it's orderly, you see this, He forms and He fills and He separates and each has their own distinct category. And modern science actually grew out of the biblical worldview of creation. You know, thunderbolts weren't just angry gods and, you know, rain wasn't just the tears of sad God, it was all just wars up in the heavens and we can, it was like we can make sense of the world. Because this is a sensible world. It's, purpose, it's, it's a world of order. And so this view of creation actually led to, to kind of the movement of modern science. And so for Christians, I mean, we would say there's nothing unscientific about Christian faith. Faith by its na- nature goes beyond science because science is just the study of the natural. And we've said creation is a miracle. It is supernatural. There is a reality outside of the natural. So faith isn't anti-science, but it is beyond science. And so technology and, and, and the advancements of technology and medicine and science, these are things that Christians have really promoted because of this and really should, should um, you know, really embrace, consider a good too because we are finding in creation the order that God has made. So what we see is God is not a God, a, a random or reckless God in His work. Everything He does, He does for a reason. It's intentional. It's purposeful. And you know, I want to say that that's not just true in creation. That's true in God's relationship with you. God is an intentional, purposeful God. Nothing is random. You are not random. God is not reckless. Nothing He does. He's like, oh, shoot, I should have thought of that before I did that. Yikes, I wish I could take that back, but now I can't. What's done is done. No. So in our life, I mean, you you see what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 when he says, in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him. Same sort of idea. In all things, God is working for the good. God is still bringing order out of chaos. This is the work that He does, and it's, it's true in the creative work, but it's true in our own life. What God is creating in us, He is one who brings order out of chaos. What He does is purposeful. And so that, that's that second thing Genesis 1 screams at us. God created intentionally and purposefully. The third thing is this, that God's creation is good. Maybe you caught that word again and again. Seven times, seven times, God looks at what He has made and says it's good. And the very last time, after He finishes His creation by creating mankind, He says it is very good. So seven times. Interestingly, the only day of the six days of, of, of His work that He doesn't say it is good is the second day. And I don't know why, but some people have thought, well, the second day is Monday. And who, who likes Monday? Definitive proof. God hates Monday too. Every other day good, Monday not good. Now, I don't know if that's something we're supposed to take away from the text. 
but I find it interesting. But the number seven you see all over the place, and maybe you already have heard that um, in biblical times and in the text, the number seven represents that which is complete, that which is perfect, that which is good. And the number six often represents that which is incomplete, which falls short, right? Which why the, What's the mark of the beast? 666, right? Like, I, I don't think we're supposed to look for the number 666 everywhere. Oh, when Satan comes, it's going to be a number up there. It's going to say, that's too odd. That's not what it's saying. It's what does six represent? It's saying it's something that falls short of God's intention of that which is good. It's a false imitation. Seven just is a number that kind of represents completion, perfection. And the number seven is written all over Genesis 1 in its written language, Hebrew, in which it was made. Right? Seven times God says, it is good. There's seven days. Genesis 1.1 has seven words in 28 letters, which is four times seven, broken into two 14-word phrases. The second verse has 14 words, seven times two. In the seventh paragraph, about the seventh day, there are three sentences in that paragraph, each made up of seven words, and the middle word of those 21 words is the word seven. And none of that's by accident. These little indicators of, 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 that, are, that, that are, they're saying to us, God's creation is good. The word Elohim, God, is said, as I mentioned, 35 times in chapter 1. That's 7 times 5. The word earth, 21 times, 7 times 3. The word heavens, 21 times, 7 times 3. The, the point here, it's not to find a, a strange code in the Bible. I'm not really into that. But, but it's just kind of these, these little clues here that, that, uh, that, that, that kind of just speak to this idea which we hear over and over again when God says, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. It's that it really is good. God's creation, when He made it, it was just as He intended. It lacked nothing. God looked at it and He loved it. He delighted in it. He found joy in what He had made. And in Proverbs 8, it, it says that God finds, that God delights in mankind, right? God delights in what He has made. It is good. And it's not just that we can delight in it. As, as those who know Him and love Him, we ought to. We should delight. We should delight and find joy in that which is created and recognize its goodness. And, uh, you know, Satan, what he wants to do is he wants to convince us that it's not good. What God has made creation is not good. And, and, and so Paul, in, in 1 Timothy for he talks about the doctrine of demons. He warns the church about the doctrine of demons, which what would that be? What are they trying to lure you into? Oh, I bet it's drunken parties, orgies and strip clubs and murder and human sacrifice. The Holy Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. What do they forbid? They forbid people to marry. Sex? Ooh, yuck. Dirty. I don't... That's... God, that's not... That's not good. It's not spiritual. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods. Oh, certain foods, bad. Limit your palate. The, 
They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good. And Paul keeps coming back to this over and over in his letters because there was this idea from Greek philosophy that was seeping into the church called Gnosticism, which was that spiritual things, the things of God are the the higher things, and and the things of the earth, you know, uh, the things of kind of our our own, you know, physical physical things, physical pleasures, food, you know, uh, sexual desire, some of these things, um, they're they're lesser, they're not spiritual, they have nothing to do with God, They're, they're to be denied. God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Everything God created is good. But, but see, Satan, he, he wants to come to the Christian, he wants to come to the world and say, no, it's not true. Not, a, not all that God has made is good. I mean, you're not good. Look at your body. Ugh. In chapter 6, it says, uh, Paul says, God provides everything for our enjoyment. God is really interested in our joy. The goodness of creation keeps us from the errors of so many other religions and philosophies, you know, that believe that you got to leave the world and you got to eschew physical pleasures in order to connect with God. Like Eastern religion, I was just watching a video on Buddhism this last week. Uh, and, and the problem that Buddhism is trying to solve is suffering. Buddha, whoever noticed, hey, a lot of people suffer. Suffering isn't good. How do we get rid of suffering? Well, what causes suffering? Well, it's when you don't get something you desire, you suffer. Well, if you don't desire anything, then you don't suffer. So if you want to get rid of suffering, you get rid of desire. So what you have to do is you have to empty your life. You have to rid your life of desire, of all of these earthly things all of these earthly pleasures. And when, you, and, and, and when you delight in them no more, when you empty yourself, you reach this state where there can be no suffering because there's no desire. That's Eastern religion. That's very different. That, that, that does not say what God created is good. And it's the same, I said, like with Greek philosophy, right? The body, the physical is something that needed to be transcended, is un, unspiritual, and, and, and that's kind of, that, that's, that's come into society and even into the church in, in a variety of insidious ways by, by, by leading some to believe that manual labor is lesser, is more demeaning, right? The things of the mind, right, are, are, are higher and better and more valuable and more important than the things of the body, than the work of the hands, Right? But if creation is good, then manual labor is not demeaning, it is not lesser. It's led some people to believe that sexual pleasure is intrinsically dirty. You know, some, some would have grown up maybe in, in, in sorts of churches or certain understandings or with parents that kind of gave you the impression that this is, this is, this is not good. This is not a gift. The Bible tells us that's, that, that God made us this way, that even sex itself is a gift. And he will show us how to use the gift in ways that are good and not harmful. But, but all that God created is good. And some have been, have been raised with this idea that, that what God made and called good is, is not good. It's, it's dirty. It's caused some people to believe that salvation is, is obtained through the denial of pleasure. 
right? There, there's, there's that, isn't that that verse by Jesus? If you want to be my disciple, you need to deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me, which has led some people to think that what it really means to be spiritual and to follow God is to be dour, to be serious, not to have fun. Not to enjoy pleasures. I remember this young guy, he loved to ride his motorcycle. He became a Christian and he, and he lamented, he heard that verse, he lamented that he would have to give up his motorcycle to follow Jesus. Because he, he, he thought that anything that actually brought joy and was happy, an experience of the world and the thrill of creation was something that, wasn't un, that we had to put to the side for the sake of following Jesus. That somehow to be spiritual, to be saved, you need to involve kind of the, the denial of pleasure, which really becomes the denial of the goodness of God in creation. It's led some people to think that suffering is good in itself, that suffering has always just been a part of life, it's part of reality, and we see here it's not. When God made, there was no suffering. Suffering is not good in itself, and a day is coming when God will renew the world that He has made. And at that time, there will be no more sin or suffering or pain or tears. But Satan wants us to believe that we have to choose between God and good. He wants to separate those two things. And too many Christians have bought into this idea in kind of little subtle ways. Isn't that what he said when he he came to the first man and the first woman there in Genesis 3? You know how it goes, right? That's the snake part. What's that all about? I don't want to jump ahead too far. But the serpent, Satan comes to, to, the, to the first people and, and he tempts them. What does he say? Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, did God say that? What did God say? Hey, I made this world for you. All sorts of juicy fruits. Juicy fruits. Beautiful sights. Enjoy it. Oh, yeah, there's that one tree. I'm going I'm to give you one rule, right? Just to show that, hey, it, like, you have to look to me. Do not, do not, I, I, I've made what is good for you to enjoy, but I will be the one, the knowledge of the tree and good and evil, I will be the one that is your guide of how to use it in a good way, in a healthy way, and not in a harmful way. You know, so that, so that a good glass of wine doesn't become drunkenness and sex doesn't become sexual immorality and food doesn't become gluttony. But what does Satan do? Didn't God say you must not eat from any tree? Isn't he a killjoy? You want to follow him? He's a killjoy. You really want to have fun? You got to run from God. You got to go to the other side of the tracks. So he's trying to separate the good from God and saying, if you want to pursue good, you got to deny God. And if you want to pursue God, you got to deny good because they don't have anything to do with one another. But what Genesis 1 is saying is what Paul in the New Testament will affirm over, over and again is what God made is good. In it, God has shown His glory, and, and, and He's made it for us to enjoy, and to enjoy Him in it. And so instead of retreating from the world as, you know, I love my heritage, the Mennonite heritage, but I look back and I think, they bought into some of this. Why, 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 is all the, why are the clothes white and black? Is color bad? Maybe there's a good answer to that question, I don't know. It's like, no, let's keep it simple. Let's keep it plain. You don't want to get crazy. White and black. We'll keep it muted. Like, God made colors, the whole spectrum. Don't you enjoy color? 
God made all sorts of foods. I mean, Mennonite, it's, it's, it's got to be white and salty and fatty. That's it, right? <laughs> Kilke, Drenike, Schmontfat, Portzeltje, Rollkuchen. I see a theme here. White, salty, fatty. I had a Mennonite palate growing up. Iceberg lettuce? It was just lettuce. There was no other kind of lettuce. What do you mean iceberg lettuce? It's lettuce. Oh, no, there's, there's like 18, there's, there's 30 varieties of lettuce. What? I'd never heard of this. An avocado? What's that? I married my wife, and she introduced me to a, a culinary world I didn't know existed. I remember being in Toronto, newly married. Eric and I were, were at a Chinese food stall. I'd never heard of lychee before. Is that how you say it? You know, like that grape sort of thing? You peel off like that bark, and there's this fruit. And I, like, I tried it, and it's like, it was like a revelation. Just, it was wonderful. It's like there's so much more out there. Colors, tastes. God gave us ears to enjoy music. I mean, often the church has kind of rejected the arts. The arts is somehow, you know, not spiritual or it's indulgent. But God gave us ears to be able to, like, be in awe and be stirred by the beauty of music. You go to the orchestra and all the parts get together. And that's all God's design, and he calls it good. He's left evidence of his glory all over the place in the world that he's made for us to enjoy. And sometimes I think we just kind of retreat from that instead of going out to look for it and to enjoy it and to try new things and to go out to that East Indian restaurant, spice your food than you would normally eat, or go out to that East Indian to try something new because God has given you these taste buds. There's, this world he has made is good. You know, Timothy Keller, he said, no one has more motivation to be playful, inquisitive, and adventurous than people who know God made it all and declared it all good and has given it for our enjoyment. If that's true, what would his people look like? They would get out there, and they would enjoy, and they would, when they get in their car and they drive to work, they would look around them, and they would see evidence of the goodness and the glory of God in the Word he's made, even in Saskatchewan. <laughs> even in Saskatchewan. God has made us for this. This is why I go to the Grand Canyon and I'm sitting on a horse and he's nibbling on the leaf on the edge of the Grand Canyon, oblivious to the sight that's in front of him. And I'm just sitting there and I'm marveling at how incredible this is. The diversity of the world that God has made. He delights in it. He calls it good and he made us to delight in it too. What would it look like for us to look around us and to recognize and to live as if what God has made is good, and in it we can find His glory and enjoy Him and enjoy life. What God created is good. Be adventurous. Try new things. Yeah, even you. I see you, Josie, over there. Lynn. Try new things. Never too late. God made it and he called it good. And in it we experience his glory. So we're, our time is done. The fourth thing that it declares, and I'm not going to do it because we're going to look at this the next two Sundays, God created humans uniquely. God created humans uniquely. Next week and the week after, we're going to look at what, it does, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean 
to be made in the image and bear the image of God. But here's, I guess, the big idea that I think we ought to take away here from Genesis chapter 1. You can throw that up, Christian. We believe that God created everything and that His creation is purposeful and is good. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have given us this account of how You called the world into being. We we, we never would have known any of that had You not shared that with us. We thank You, God, that You have left evidence of Your reality and Your goodness all around us in the world You have made. You... Your, your mind, your imagination is just incredible. Lord, the diversity with which you made the world. Um, we just thank you, God, that, that we can live in this. We can enjoy what you have made. We can encounter you in it. Lord, if, there, if there's anything in our life that you created good, that, we've, that we have um, kind of bought into this idea that somehow it's lesser than good, maybe it's even our own bodies, our own self-image, Lord, um, just remind us, Lord, that uh, your world is good. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who brings chaos into order. And, and some of us right now, our lives are feeling kind of chaotic. Maybe feeling a little bit like tofu baho, tofu va, tofu va bohu. You know what I'm talking about, God. Formless and void. Some of us may be feeling a little formless and void right now in life. And um, Lord, you through your son Jesus, you recreate us. You are at work desiring to bring order into the chaos of our life. Everything you do in us, Lord, you do with purpose and intention um, that is good. And so help us just to, to trust in you or to trust in your work in our life. And... Uh, as we go from here, Lord, to, to, to go back to our, our homes and our schools and our workplaces, and uh, Lord, just go with fresh eyes to behold, behold your glory in the world you have made and, and just to live in a state of worship because you are worthy. You are worthy. All this we pray in your Son's name. Amen.